right? We are in a series, we are actually wrapping up a series that we started at the beginning of this month called What Now? This idea of a series of, on obedience in Christ. Like, what does it look like in 2022 as an individual, a teenager, an adult, whatever, what does it look like to live the way that God has called us to live? All right? What does it look like to be obedient to what God has for us. And in, throughout this series, we, the first week we looked at the idea of like what our first act of obedience should be as, as a Christian. It was the idea of baptism. And we talked all about baptism. It's an outward action that represents an inward change. Um, and man, praise God, the following week we had, I think, five of you get baptized. And we've got a few more in the queue getting ready to be baptized. And we're really excited about all that, about what God's doing there. And then a couple weeks ago... Um, Nick shared with us on the idea of spiritual disciplines, and he really challenged us, and he challenged my heart, too. Like, as I was sitting there listening, I felt convicted that I need to do a better job with my spiritual disciplines as well. Um, the idea of reading your Bible, like, not just reading it, but, like, studying it, and, like, allowing it to guide you, allowing it to lead you, allowing it to, to push you to where you need to be. Also, the idea of prayer and, and worship and, like, locking in and, and truly giving God your best and then the idea of, of coming to church and being faithful to church, not because like we want to count you as a head count, but because we feel like that's the best place for you in the realm of growth, in the realm of like development, and the realm of um, just growing in your relationship with Christ uh, through the body of believers, through the church, is one of the strongest ways that that can happen. All right? Tonight, we're going to continue that series, wrap up that series, if you would, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, another area of obedience in our lives. But before we do that, I want to share a story with you guys. As most of you know, and if you don't know, you're about to find out, my youngest child, my daughter, Kanika, is adopted, um, and she's adopted from Thailand, all right? So she spent the first two years of her life living right outside of Bangkok, and um, we actually uh, flew there um, when she was two years old. It's like, man, nine years ago, which is crazy to think that she's been with us that long, but we flew to Bangkok to go pick her up, and while after we got there, we had some time before we got to meet her. And so Amanda and I, like, on the front end of the trip, before we were lugging around a kid who had no idea who we were, um, we decided we were going to do a little bit of sightseeing, a little bit of tourism, because we weren't really going to have an opportunity the rest of the trip to really do it well. So we decided to go to um, this place called the Grand Palace. And if you know anything about Thailand, you know, like, this is, like, a big deal. Like, Thailand is very much a Buddhist country. Uh, they unashamedly, like it's everywhere, Buddhism is everywhere, all throughout the entire country. And as we were there, we got to visit this grand palace and what's called a wat, which is basically like the Buddhist temple, all right? It's like this just massive, enormous, uh, uh, like just tons of gold and like architecture that is just out of this world, all focused on Buddha. And in this temple... Uh, in this Wat is, is what's known as the Emerald Buddha. And this Emerald Buddha, I don't even remember exactly how big it was because it was so far away. But it, it's a good size. It, it's carved out of a solid emerald. It makes you think about that. Like, and shaped in, the, in a little fat Buddha sitting there. And, like, I remember walking around all of Thailand and you would see Buddha statues everywhere, right? And one of the craziest things to me was, like, the, these, these Buddhists, they would, they would be so devoted to the statue that they would actually leave drinks out for Buddha. So like if you saw a statue in the street, 
of Buddha, like just sitting on like a windowsill, you, it was not uncommon to see like five or six cans of soda opened full with straws pointed towards Buddha, offering him a drink. Or same thing, like they'd have food out there and they'd do all these things. And like craziest thing, like there was this one right outside our hotel and, and we would walk by it every day and every day there'd be new drinks. It wouldn't be the same drinks, like it'd change. I, I started watching and looking for it. And every day there'd be new drinks. And the, the, the people there in Thailand were convinced that at night Buddha would drink all these drinks and clear them out. And in my mind I'm going, where is the maintenance guy that is like keeping up with this? Like who, who is the janitor that's coming through and like wiping all these out every day and keeping their faith alive? But one of the most heartbreaking things to see was the devotion to this statue that took place while we were at the Grand Palace. You see, you walk into this room where, where the Emerald Buddha is, and out of respect, Amanda and I, like, we, we just stayed to the back. They tell you, like, if you're not here to worship, if you're just here to look, like, just kind of stay out of the way. They don't mind you being there, but don't get in their way as they're worshiping. And, and that was fine. Like, so we kind of stayed to the back, but these people, like, they would walk in, and they wouldn't even look up. They would walk in and, and they would like almost like hide their faces from this statue. Some would even walk in and then they would immediately turn their back. And they would take off their shoes. And then they would just sit there and just sob. And cry. And it, I remember just standing there as a Christian, watching these people in this scenario going, man, where's the hope? Like, where's, where is the, where's the promise of joy? And I remember having this feeling of just being burdened for these people. Burdened for those that were there that were in desperate need of a savior. Those that were in desperate need of a Messiah. They needed Jesus. They needed the gospel in their lives. And I remember leaving that temple that day and going back to the hotel room and like the, the, the rest of the trip was a whirlwind because like the next day we got our daughter and like we met her for the first time. It was just, it was chaos from there on out. But like I remember that moment in time when I stood there watching these people lost, watching these people, like, just searching and thinking, man, they need the gospel. They need Jesus. And I remember leaving there, coming home with a fresh burden for the lost. A fresh burden for those that need Jesus in their lives. And I remember coming home and like being motivated as a youth pastor, like, I'm going to share the gospel with every student that I come in contact with. I'm going to like charge the gates of hell with a water gun and, and like try and ex extinguish the flames. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was so motivated in that moment to see people's lives change through the good news of the gospel. So I want to ask you this question. In life, maybe not spiritually, maybe just in general, what is it that motivates you? What was that, friendship? Yeah, awesome. Anybody else? What else? 
I was going to say rhetorical, but if you guys want to, by all means. What else motivates you? God? All right. What else? I got a couple here. How many of you guys do stuff for the, like, the praise or the adoration that you receive for doing a good job? Yeah. I'm, like, I get it. I understand. What about, how many of you guys are motivated by the payoff? And what I mean by that is, like, the trophy, the paycheck, the medal, the, the bragging rights, whatever it is. I think a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, like, that's it. Maybe it's the scholarship that you're trying to earn. Maybe it's, it's, the, it's the notoriety. Or maybe it's the motivation is the social standing. If I just succeed at this, then everybody will approve of me. If I just accomplish this task and do it well, and people praise me for it publicly, then, then, I'll be where I need to be. And maybe that's your motivation. Maybe that's what, what gets you out of bed in the morning. Maybe it's your own self-esteem, or maybe it's something else. These are all the things, and there's more, that would motivate us to accomplish a task. In my personal life, when I was in high school, I've shared my story, my motivation was I wanted to play college football. Everything I did focused on that. I focused on that when I rolled out of bed in the morning to go to the gym before school. I focused on that when I was eating umpteen million calories a day to try and gain weight and try to like get in the best possible physical shape I could possibly be in. And, and, and that was my, everything was motivated by my desire to accomplish the task of playing at the next level. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets you going? What is it that, that like, sparks that fire in your chest that, that just makes you want to go, like, attack? Tonight, in the short amount of time that we have, I want to challenge us all. I want to challenge myself, too, because, guys, as I was preparing this message, can I tell you, I felt more conviction than I'm really willing to listen, or willing to admit to you, like, fully. As Christians, we have been commanded to do certain things and do certain tasks. As believers, as, as people who would claim Jesus as our Savior, which most of us in this room, if we were honest with ourselves, like that's the category we kind of claim, that's the category we say we fall into. We're commanded to do some things. And this is, shouldn't be a surprise to any of you because we preach on this often. We talk about this idea often. But one of the, the greatest commandments that we could possibly fulfill is known as the Great Commission. Right? It's the proclaiming of Jesus to the world. Right? Go, tell the world about Jesus, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all that stuff. Right? Like, we're commanded to tell people about our Savior. We're commanded to go and share the gospel. Well, why aren't we? Why aren't we doing it? I think the motivation of the Great Commission like, when you read it and you study it and you study those passages or that passage, like, really the only thing you can come up with is because God said so. Like, why should we share our faith? Well, God said we have to. 
which really should be enough motivation, but let's be honest, it's not. Because if it was, we'd all be like hitting the streets every day telling people about Jesus with like every person we came in contact with, right? We don't. So tonight, I want to look at a different passage. I want to come at it from a different angle, a different motivation, if you would. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 is where we're going to be. 2 Corinthians 5, and we're just going to read a couple of the verses. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He is challenging them. He's encouraging them. He is um, just really pleading with them. And here's the thing I need you guys to understand is that as we look at this, as we look at this passage, this is simply a different approach, a different motivation than God said so. As we read this passage, as we look at it, I hope that you'll be able to see the motivation should be a little more intense, that we should have a slightly different push in our lives. We should be like more apt to share our faith because of what we learn through this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, starting in verse number 10. I'm just going to read verse 10 and 11 first. It says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known, known also to your conscience. Here, we're going to stop there. We're going to circle around this a couple times, but I need you to understand something, that the motivation for us for sharing our faith, the motivation for us telling people about who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, we just celebrated it in Easter, like his death, burial, and resurrection, giving us eternal life, giving us the forgiveness of our sins, like the greatest story ever told that we should be telling everyone. Like, our motivation for this should be, one of them should be the fact that we know how it all ends. Like, we know what's to come. It says right here in verse number 10 that, um, that for each one, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every single person is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, those who are Christians, it's a slightly easier test because your sins have been blotted out. They've been forgiven. Jesus already took that burden on him. But what about those that don't have Jesus in their life? I don't know about you guys. That's a frightening thing. Like, I think about my own life. Now, praise God, I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven, and I know that. But, man, I think about the things that I would have to attest to in front of God. The things that I would have to stand before God and just hear him accuse me of. And I would have no argument. And then ultimately receiving the punishment of being cast out and being cast into hell rather than heaven and being eternally separated and suffering. Our motivation needs to be driven by the fact that because we know what's to come, we should be sharing, we should be persuading those towards Christ. 
I've heard it said this way that like, and I think I've shared this just a couple weeks ago, it's this idea like if you know the cure to cancer, like if you knew what it took to cure cancer worldwide and you held on to that secret and you didn't share it with anybody and millions of people every year die of cancer and, like, and you just held on to it selfishly and never told anybody about it and you just went to the grave with it, it's no different than knowing the cure for hell and not sharing it with people. Because we know what's to come, we should be sharing, we should be persuading. Let's skip a couple verses here and look at verse number 20. Verse number 20, it says this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he has made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become his, the righteousness of God. There's a few things I want to point out in these two verses, and I think that they're important things that we understand that will help us in this motivation that we're talking about, this, this idea of our motivation to do what we're called to do, the motivation to actually be obedient to the Great Commission. And is this, the first thing is this, that we are Christ's ambassadors, what does that mean? Anybody know what an ambassador is? Anybody want to give me like the quick Reader's Digest version of what an ambassador is? Drew? No? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it's a person that represents a bigger party. That's a good way. That's like a very like neutral way to say that. Like, like the person that's assigned to be the spokesperson or the rep, the representative for a greater entity. So like you'll see all around, you'll hear the word ambassador used in countries a lot, right? When I was in Israel a couple of years ago, we were like, look at the hotel across the street from us was like super swanky. And so like we like snuck into their lobby to like look and like see if we like could see anything really cool. And while we were there, the ambassador for the United States of America to Israel showed up. And it was like all eyes on him. And then like the grand priest came through, or the, uh, the rabbi, the, the, like the high, highest level rabbi in Jerusalem walked in the lobby, and you would have thought like Jesus himself walked in, because everybody was like, oh, right? And, but the ambassador had a, had a seat at the table with that rabbi. The ambassador is an important role when it comes to countries, but he speaks on behalf of the leadership of that country. He speaks on behalf of that organization. It's no different for us. When, we, when, when Paul is saying here that we are ambassadors for Christ, it means we are his mouthpiece. We are a representation of his values. We're a representation of his love. We're a representation of his character. We're a representation of him. And if you aren't reflecting that, you are wrong. We're ambassadors. We're his spokespeople. We are, we, are to, um, we are to represent him well. We also see in this verse that, that he uses us to appeal to others. I love that term, appeal. My, my sister's a lawyer. So um, my parents always joke that they're covered on like both sides. Like they have a pastor as a son, so like spiritually they're covered, and then they have a lawyer as a daughter, so like legally they're covered. Either way, they're good, they're taken care of. But like that word appeal is very much a legal term, 
right? If you don't like the ruling on something, if you don't like the, the, the way that something is going or like maybe a court case is ruled one way, you get the opportunity to file an appeal, which basically means they're going to go back and they're going to relook at it and they might change their minds. Maybe they'll, run, they'll find more evidence and they'll run the trial back and run it again and, and try it again and see if they get a different result. Right? And so as Christians, we're called to appeal to people, which means we want them to make a change. We want them to change their mind. We want them to, to reevaluate the situation and hopefully make a decision based on the facts that we present. We're called to appeal. We're called to be ambassadors. We are working on Christ's behalf to reach people. I love the other term that's used here um, in, in the end of verse number 20. It says this, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Anybody want to take a stab at what the word implore means? Like when you look it up, dictionary.com it. Anybody? All right, very simple. I did the dirty work for you. I looked it up myself. It, it very simply means this. Beg someone earnestly or desperately to do something. To beg someone desperately and earnestly. So when, when Paul says here that we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, what he's basically saying is, listen, I'm begging you, please turn to Christ. I am desperate for you to make that decision. I can't make that decision for you, but I beg you, you to make that decision. There's an urgency there. There's a desperation because we know how it ends. We know what's to come. And we don't want our loved ones. We don't want our friends. We don't want our family to go before the judgment seat of Christ without having Jesus on their, in their heart and their sins being blotted out and forgiven. We need to be motivated by that fact. We need to be begging people to turn to Jesus. But too often we're inconvenienced. We know we're supposed to do these things, especially those of us that were raised in church. I've been in church as long as I can remember. My family started going to the church I was raised in when I was like a couple months old. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're called to do. But too often we don't do it. I've heard a lot of this time, like, people that are raised in church, and my previous church, we had a Christian school attached to us. I heard this all the time from the Christian school kids. So if you're a Christian school kid, like, that's in here, like, I'm about to step on your toes. I don't know any lost people. Bull crap. Like, we all know lost people. It doesn't take long to find lost people. Look around the room. Lost people here. Not everybody that goes to church is saved. Can I tell you that? Go to Publix. Walk down the aisle. Guess what? Lost people. Look around the dinner table. Maybe you've got lost people in your family that aren't Christian. Walk down the hallway of your school. Lost person, lost person, lost person, lost person. See, like, it doesn't take much. So why aren't we doing anything about it? Why aren't we taking action? 
Why aren't we doing what we're called to do? Because we know what's to come. Because we know what's happening, like we know how this is going to play out. It's every person's either going to end up in heaven with Jesus or in hell eternally separated from him suffering. Like we know how the story ends. And because we know that, I ask you this question. How much do you have to not care about someone if you're not sharing the gospel with them. I could put it another way. How much do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? How apathetic do you have to be? How much like just apathy has to be filled up in your heart to just be like, you know what, they're on their own. Somebody else will tell them sure about that? Ah, man, I'm I'm sure, like, of the other, you know, a couple thousand Christians in our area, like, somebody will share the gospel with them. It doesn't have to be me. Are you sure about that? Maybe you're the only one they know. How much do you have to hate someone? How much do you have to not care If you aren't sharing the gospel. Because here's the thing, guys, listen. If you truly believe what you claim, if you truly believe that Jesus is the way, the only way, and it's through his death, burial, and resurrection, that's the only way you can get to heaven. And having a relationship with him and being forgiven and having your sins washed clean by him and only him is the only one worthy of doing that. If you truly believe that, Why would you not share? You've probably seen a video floating around. Um, I think Pastor Mercer has shared it here before. I've shared it in messages before. But it's a video of a guy named Penn Jillette. Anybody familiar with Penn and Teller, the illusionists? You guys know what I'm talking about? They're all over Vegas. They do all these things. Like Penn Jillette is like one of the most outspoken atheists in the world. Like he believes God doesn't exist. He's just living his life, and he, he will tell you all about it. Like, he doesn't believe in God, and he's very public about that. And a couple of years ago, he shared on his YouTube channel, he has this little, like, video blog that he does, and he shared about an interaction that he had with a Christian after one of their shows in Vegas. He said, this man came up to him, and you could tell, as Penn is telling this story, he is touched. Like, he was moved. And this guy walked up to him and said, hey, man, I just want you to know that I'm a huge fan of your, of your, of your work. Um, I'm a little bit of an illusionist myself, and, like, you've inspired me to get better at my craft. But even more importantly than that, like, I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus, and I want to give you this book. And he gave him a copy of the New Testament. Just a little, like, little, like one of those little Gideon Bibles. Like, nothing crazy, but just, like, a little tiny thing. And he gave it to him. He said, I wrote you a note on the front. Just know that I'm praying for you, and like, I love you, Jesus loves you, man, have a great night. And he walked away. End of, end of the story, right? Well, Penn shares it, and he said, it, it touched him enough that he felt like he needed to share. And this raging atheist, as he would self-proclaim himself to be, made that statement that I just quoted a few minutes ago. 
he was touched by this man's effort to share the gospel with him, to share the good news with him, because he truly believes that if Penn were to take his last breath, he'd be in hell rather than heaven. And Pendulet said that phrase, how much do you have to hate someone if you truly believe something not to share it with them? Now, I wish I could say the story like ended in the way that like Penn like got saved and now he's a televangelist and he's traveling the world. No, he's still an atheist. As far as I know. But he was touched by the act of obedience. He was touched enough where he went worldwide. Millions of people have seen that video through his YouTube channel of him talking about a good man who cared enough to share the gospel with him because he was being obedient to what he believed was true. So I really ask us this question, what's stopping us? How selfish are we? How selfish are we as believers if we're not sharing the truth, if we're not sharing the gospel? How, how unmotivated are we? Like, what is your motivation? Like, what is it that, that is stopping you? Like, why are you not doing it? Can I give you guys a little bit of motivation? Can I give you some things that maybe will work for you? These are some things that work for me in the sharing of the gospel and in my motivation to be an outspoken Christian, my motivation to, to share the good news with people, to be able to have those conversations with people. First is this. I want to be able to walk in the gates of heaven one day and Jesus look at me straight in the eye and say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You did it. And I believe there's going to be this moment when I walk through the gates where Jesus is just going to smile and he's going to say, hey, um, there's a bunch of people behind these gates that are here because of you um, and they want to thank you. I don't know theologically if that's actually going to happen or not, but like, I hope it would be cool if it does, right? But like, I want to have that opportunity. I want to like be able to like bring as many people along with me to heaven as possible. I want Jesus to look at me and say, you done good, Daryl. Well done. I'm a people pleaser, and like, there's nobody else that I want to have the approval of than Jesus. The other motivation is maybe obedience. Just sheer obedience. You, you want to do what is right. You want to do what you've been called to do. And for me, that's it. Like, I, I want to be obedient. There's no worse place to be in my life than in disobedience to God's word. There are times in my life where I've slipped and like I, I've, in an area of my life, I've let obedience to God take the second place to other things. And it's in those moments that turmoil exists. It's in those moments that suffering exists. It's those moments where there's just that uneasy feeling in my gut. Guys, listen, when you, when you obey Jesus with your life, holy, with everything that you do, there is no greater peace than you could possibly imagine because you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So maybe it's obedience. Maybe it's your love for God. I know some of you guys love Jesus like so much. So many of you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Like, and maybe that's enough motivation for you. If it is, if that's your motivation, man, live it out. Stop faking. Be genuine. Let the love of God shine out throughout you. Maybe it's the motivation of eternal realities. 
Maybe it's the motivation of the, the reality of heaven and hell, and you've come to the truth like that you know that at the end of this life, everyone's going to take one more breath, and that after that breath, you're either going to wake up in eternity in heaven, worshiping Jesus, or you're going to be eternally separated from him in hell suffering. And maybe that is the motivation you need. Maybe that's enough. Maybe it's compassion for the lost. Ever since that day, I was walking around the Grand Temple, or the Grand Palace, seeing these people bow and cry and worship this emerald statue. Ever since that day, I've had a certain amount of compassion and just desire to see the lost saved, the, the lost reached with the good news of the gospel. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's what you need. Maybe that's the, 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 the motivation that you need in your life. Maybe it's a combination of all of them. Maybe there's something else. Whatever it is, whatever it takes for you to be obedient to the Great Commission, to go, tell the world about Jesus, share the gospel, right, and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Like, bring people along. Like, whatever it takes, whatever that motivation is for you, whatever it's going to take to get you out of your seat and onto your feet and to move and, and be a mouthpiece for God, to be that ambassador that we're called to be, whatever that motivation is, man, buckle up to it. Like, ride that momentum. Use that. Use that passion. Use that motivation to make a difference in the world. What are we waiting for? This whole series has been an idea of the what now question. And the only way that I can answer this question for us, especially if, if you're a Christian, if you claim Christ as your Savior, what now? Tell somebody about Jesus. Be obedient to that. Be bold. Be out there. Like, tell somebody about what he's done for you. You may not know all the answers, and that's cool. That's all right. We'll help you. Like, keep coming here. You'll learn. But tell somebody. Walk in obedience. I'm a living testament to the fact that God honors obedience. There are things in my life, seasons of my life, where I lived in disobedience to God. And, man, I'm telling you, I never want to go back. Not a good place. But the season that I'm in right now of walking in obedience with Christ and the season I've been in for a while of walking in obedience to Christ, can I tell you that, like, there's no greater place to be? Walk in obedience to what he has called you to do. Read your Bible. Worship. Pray. Study. Be in church. Share the gospel. It's not rocket science. Be obedient to who he has called you to be, and you will see change in the community around you, and the people in your life will start to surrender to Jesus. I promise you that. It may not happen right away, but obedience to Christ will eventually take root in their heart. Your obedience will impact them. So tonight as we close, 
as the worship team makes their way back up onto the stage, I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond. This whole series has been about this idea of obedience, this idea of surrendering to who God is in your life and, and living it out and, and day in and day out living for Jesus. So here's my challenge to each and every one of us, and I'm including myself in this because there's areas in my life where I've got to clean it up. As we start to sing here in just a moment, if you need to have that conversation with Christ where you say, you know what, God, I need to be more obedient to you. I need to do what you've called me to do, whether it be in your spiritual disciplines and the sharing of your faith. Maybe you need to be baptized and you haven't been baptized yet, like you've just been sitting on it. Like whatever it is, whatever that obedience looks like for you, if you need to like tighten up that obedience with Christ, if you need to have that conversation with him, when we start to sing here in just a moment, I encourage you to come and just get on your knees at the altar. There's nothing special about these steps, but it's just that act of, of worship, of coming before him and kneeling and praying and saying, God, use me. God, I want to be obedient to who you want me to be. I want to live this out. I want to go to school tomorrow, and I want to live an intentional life that is pointing people towards you. I don't want to fake it anymore. I want to be real. I want to be genuine. If you're in here tonight and you've never accepted that forgiveness that Jesus offers, if you've never said, God, I, I need you in my life, I need to be forgiven of my sins, I want to live for you, I want, I want to be forgiven, like I, when I take my last breath, I want because I know how it's going to end, I want to be in heaven rather than hell. If you've never had that conversation with me, you can right now. It's a simple conversation of saying, God, I'm a sinner. I need you. Forgive me of my sins. I want to be obedient to you. And in a moment, you'll have that opportunity to do that. But if you need to have that moment of obedience, that conversation about obedience, the altar will be open when we start to sing. You just come and kneel and pray. You pray as long as you want. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Before I close us in prayer, I wanted to give that opportunity for those that are in here that maybe need that forgiveness of your sin. In the quietness of your heart, you say something like this. Say, dear Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner that needs forgiveness. God, I ask that you would forgive my sins. Save me so that if I were to take my last breath tonight, I would wake up in your presence in heaven, not eternally separated from you. God, I want to be obedient to you. I want to live for you. And just follow it up with a simple amen. Every eye still closed, every head still bowed. Nobody's looking around but me. 
if you're in here tonight and you said that prayer and you meant it, like the best you know how, you might not know everything, but you know that you wanted that forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to do so. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to be able to pray for you. If you said that prayer just now, just look up at me. Anybody? Anybody? God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the opportunity at heaven. God, I pray for every single student in this room that we would desire to be obedient to what you have called us to be, whether it be that we walk in obedience through baptism or we walk in obedience through our spiritual disciplines or we walk in obedience to the Great Commission and we tell people about Jesus. Whatever it is, God, I pray that every single one of us would be bold enough, that we would be brave enough, Lord, that we would be motivated enough to honor you. God, I pray for this time of worship, Lord, this time of response, Lord, that if there's one in here that needs you, Lord, that they would surrender to you right now, Lord. If there's one in here that needs that recommitment of, of saying, God, I, I want to be obedient to you, Lord, that they would have that moment right now in this time. God, that there's, this would be a moment of surrender, that this would be a moment of life change, that this would be a moment where people step up to the plate and say, God, I'm done playing games. I want to be obedient to who you've called me to be. And God, I pray for the fallout of that. I pray that because of a room full of students that, that are surrendering to being obedient to you, Lord, when they surrender to you, Lord, that, you would, that we would see just a great movement of the gospel, Lord, that we would see lives changed, that we would see lives touched and, and forever changed through the gospel. God, I pray as we respond, as we worship right now in this moment, that you would eliminate any fear, you would eliminate any doubt, you would eliminate any judgment that might be felt, Lord, that, that people would be welcome to come freely and just have a conversation with you at the altar. God, we give you this moment right now. It's in your most glorious and precious name we pray. Amen.